When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Women's March was the largest single-day protest in United States history. To put that more plainly, in 2017, more than 3.3 million people participated in the Women's March in more than 500 cities. And Linda Sarsour, a household name in the United States, was a big reason why that happened. And I'm really humbled because she happened to be in Nashville and she took the time to swing by the studio to be today's guest on Sounds Good. The New York Times called her the Brooklyn homegirl in a hijab, which I think is amazing. Linda Sarsour is an American political activist and former executive director of the Arab American Association of New York. She gained national attention for her advocacy on behalf of American Muslims post 9-11 and as a co-chair of the Women's March. Additionally, Linda is most notably recognized for her focus on intersectional movement building. And here's a fun fact. I was thinking about this and Linda might just be the most controversial guest we've ever brought onto Sounds Good. If you Google her today, I'm sure there's a brand new conspiracy theory about her spreading around the internet. And I think that that's important to note because here on the podcast, we don't shy away from hard conversations. We don't shy away from controversy. We celebrate the people, ideas, and movements that are shaping the world for the better. But sometimes heading up a movement comes with a lot of personal backlash for the individuals that make it happen. So I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. And again, this is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and making an impact. And we have a lot to learn from Linda's resilience. So let's just jump straight into this conversation. Linda, welcome to Nashville. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to have you here. I've admired you for a long time online. It's been really uh, amazing getting to know you and getting to learn from you through the internet um, over the last, I guess, probably year and a half or so. But I, at the same time, I don't know a lot about you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've learned from you, from your wisdom, but I don't know a lot about your personal story. And so I want to start in Brooklyn because I know that you live in Brooklyn, right? Born and raised, bred, live Brooklyn. There we go. Okay. I was going to ask, like, what was life like growing up in Brooklyn? So I am a daughter of Palestinian immigrants who came from living under military occupation really to um, start a life where they wouldn't have to raise their children in that um, in that kind of environment. And I love where I'm from, and I believe I embody a lot of what Brooklyn is. Mm. I grew up going um, to public school my whole life, so I know I was able to meet people from all walks of life. Um, and my family uh, really exposed me to the world um, in a way that I think maybe other Muslim children weren't or other um, communities were not. And I had a good life. I, I mean, I, my parents also at the same time sheltered me. So I didn't feel like there was so much injustice in the world. Yeah. And uh, Even it, though, do you feel like they had left Palestine because of the injustice? Like yeah. they had been kind of wrapped up in that experience and that's why they left? So basically, I my understanding of the world was the only injustice that was happening was in Palestine. Oh. And my parents really instilled that in me. So I always grew up with this idea that I come from a lineage of people who are oppressed. And But living in, in Brooklyn, you go to public school, your friends have a lot of the same things that you have. You like the same music. You're kind yeah. of having a good time and you think everyone's okay, but you don't also know people's personal stories and what happens when they go home, especially for friends of mine who are African-American. I went to a predominantly African-American high school, which was my zone school in Brooklyn. But I lived a pretty good life. And for me, um, I'm the oldest of seven children. So my parents had uh, five daughters and two sons. And so I had a big family. So you could just imagine I just had friends even when I didn't have friends. You know, like I had I grew up in a just in a big family, wholesome. And it was really good. And 
my story really started on 9-11. And that's where my story begins as an activist and as an organizer. What were you doing pre-9-11? How old were you? So I was 21 years old when 9-11 happened. And, um, you know, I got married at a very young age. Uh, By the time 9-11 happened, I already had two children. And I was a college student. And I was um, in a college uh, class in the morning that Tuesday and that kind of dreadful day. And people have to remember that, you know, there's a generation of us, my generation. There was no Twitter and there was Mm. no Facebook and there was no, you know, flat screen TVs on your college campus. So when that day and when that horrific event happened, I didn't even know what was going on. My college professor just ran out of the classroom and never came back. And we were like, what's going on here? Oh, wow. And we had to walk home. Um, and, you know, for me, it was about a two and a half hour walk home from my college campus because there was no public transportation in New York City. City at the just time. shut down. The whole city was shut down. And I walked all the way home to my neighborhood where I'm from. And I looked around and all the businesses were closed and predominantly Arab and Muslim-owned businesses. And I was like, this just doesn't feel right. There was something that was so unsettling for me at the moment when I didn't really know what happened. All I knew from walking in the street and talking to random people, something about airplanes hit a building is what what I knew. And by the time I got to my mom's house, who was watching my children while I was at school— my mom runs out of the house and, you know, she's a Muslim woman that wears hijab, but she wasn't wearing her hijab. And were you wearing hijab at the time? I was wearing hijab okay. at the time. And when I walked to my p- mom's house and she's running out of the house and I'm like, where are you going? She's like, I'm going to pick up your brother for middle school. And I'm like, but you're not wearing your hijab. And she's like, we can't wear it right now. Wow. And then and again, this like p- like somebody punched me in the stomach. I was like, what is going on? So I walked in. I saw my son. He was about two years old sitting in front of the TV and he's like, mama, fire, fire. And I sat down and there it was. I just sunk it all and it like mm. sunk in the couch and it just absorbed what, what I was seeing on TV. You know, the endless like, you know, cycle of like the buildings being hit. And then, then you see Muslim terrorists, Muslim, Muslim, Saudi Arabia terrorists. And that's when I was like, it all kind of came together. For yeah. Me. That was the first moment in my life where I, being Muslim came to the forefront of my mind. I never really thought about it. I mean, I live in New York City. There's a lot of people from a lot of places. I lived in a community that was predominantly Central American, Puerto Rican, Dominicans, but there was a lot of Muslims, and it was normal. I, yeah. I mean, at least I never really felt discriminated against. And then um, about two weeks later, I'm at the mosque, and women came to the mosque, immigrant women crying, and I was like, what's going on here? They were like, someone came to our house and took my husband, or the other one was like, they took my son and I'm like, what do you mean people just came to your house and took your husband? I didn't really understand what yeah. was going on. And at that moment, I realized what was going on, which was le- different levels of law enforcement agencies came to my, descended on my community and literally started stripping men from their homes for things like name sharing, for other arbitrary reasons. And it, I started translating for these women because I'm fluent in Arabic and trying to f- help them and help the local leadership of the community, help them find legal services. I mean, we wanted to find their husbands. Where did they go? Yeah. And that was my radicalizing moment. I said, this is just not right. Sh- this is not how it should be. We have nothing to do with this horrific attack. These people are not connected to us in any way. Why are these people suffering for something that has nothing to do with them? And that was my entry point into activism, really starting to, from a place of defending my own community mm. and the people that I'm the closest to, the people I lived with in my community, people who look like me, who, who practice and worship like me. And then, you know, my journey has led me to understand that an injustice against one community is an injustice against everyone. And I realized there was actually a lot of injustice that was happening against black people, against undocumented people, people of color, LGBTQIA communities. And then I found myself in this in this kind of bittersweet but hopeful movement of we're not alone. And there are other people who are facing injustice. And, and here I am, you know, 16 years later fighting the same fight. But this time the fight is with a lot of other people who yeah. are standing in solidarity. So that's that's like my trajectory into how I got into this activism work. That's beautiful. And I, I love that your activism came from a place of, it started at your mosque. It started close to home. It wasn't that you said, I'm going to go out and be an activist. You just you kind of stepped up mm-hmm. in the place that you were at. Um, which, you know, I think right now, I think a lot of people are like, how can I get involved? What can I do? And I bet you probably get emails all the time of people being like, I want to be, you know, a huge supporter of the National Women's March. And mm-hmm. uh, ultimately, I think people can start where they're at. And, Absolutely. And let that 
begin the process. I think people are intimidated by the way, the way that we tell history, right? Everything's about like Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, Rosa Parks. And we we have a kind of celebritized this activism world. So people think to themselves, but I got a full-time job. I can't be Linda out here in the streets all day long. And I tell people that's actually not what activism is. I'm not actually the example of activism. Hmm. I'm a more extreme form of someone who has taken this on as a full-time lifestyle. But really, everybody can do something. I mean, what I started with is I had a, a, a skill and my skill was I spoke another language. So mm. I used that in the moment and it turned out to be really helpful that I was able to understand someone's culture, someone's language, and then connect them to a world that I was connected to as someone who was a fluent English speaker. And then sometimes, you know, your your skill might be that you're a graphic designer or you know how to create graphics and the movement needs you. And maybe you are a tech person and you know how to help people build platforms online where people can mobilize and organize. You know, maybe you're, you know, we have women at the Women's March who are bakers and they brought that type of joy into the work. You know, it's we amazing. have to eat too, you know, um, <laughs> or even, you know, for some of the events that we do, you know, helping us kind of, you know, there are women who are, you know, uh, event planners, right? So they were doing wedding event like weddings and yeah. graduations. But guess what? Your event planning skills actually are helpful to the movement. Yeah. And and, and even you, though it's not seen publicly, you know, mm-hmm. they're behind the scenes. That's the most important stuff, really. The behind the scenes stuff. So when people see us, you know, we're, you're, we're on the front lines, we're public, we're on social media, we're in, you know, we're on national television. That's actually the least of the work. And yeah. the most important work are the people that don't want the credit, that are not on the front lines, but in fact, allow us to be on the front lines. Mm. You know, the people who help us ensure that, you know, the logistics are in place, you know, the people that ensure that, you know, our legal team is in place if we're getting arrested in civil disobedience. Like those are the important people. The movement has so many kind of faceless people that you don't know. But to me, I couldn't do the work that I do without those people. Um, And they are some of the most humble human beings that you could ever meet and the most important part of the movement. Okay, so help me bridge this gap a little bit because I do want to get into more Women's March stuff and what you're doing in 2016, 2017, 2018. But you know, help me bridge this gap from 2001 up until now. You've got two young kids when 9-11 happens and you're kind of thrust into this role of just helping your community. What does life look like for you over the next five, 10 years? Mm-hmm. I've had the most difficult 16 years of my life. And a lot of times, you know, people see what like what the, what we call the glam. So you see the national television, you know, kind of appearances. You yeah. might see us on the cover of a magazine. And that's actually um, the very small part of the work. And hmm. most of it has been, um, you know, sleepless nights. You know, it's being away from your family and children because you really believe so deeply in this and you believe that you're fighting for them. So I sacrifice a lot of time with my children. Um, and, you know, over the course of the years, I've experienced many traumatic situations, including, um, you know, I was in a very deadly car crash back in 2005, where my mentor and the executive director of the Arab American Association at that time where I worked passed away. And I was the driver of that car. <sighs> And, uh, you know, a big trailer truck kind of drove us off the road in Danville, Pennsylvania, as we were on a road trip. And here I was, a 25-year-old who just lost her mentor um, at an organization that I worked um, at. And uh, I stepped up and I became the executive director at at the age of 25 of an organization. I was, again, a parent. I had two kids. And what was the organization called again? The Arab American Association of New York, which was an organization that started um, and opened its doors immediately after 9-11 to serve that community that was – targeted in a, in a very wow. vicious way. Was it a big uh, deal that you were a woman taking on that leadership role in, and please correct me mm-hmm. if this is not okay to say, mm-hmm. but uh, in the Arab community? Absolutely. I mean, I was 25 years old. I was a, a very outspoken, you know, woman, um, Muslim, hijab, and in a community that was very traditional and conservative. And there wasn't many public visible women leaders, although there were there were always women doing a lot of the kind of back end work in the community. And here I was, I stepped up to be an executive director of an organization. And I had a lot of challenges, you know, kind of trying to like, you know, own my space and own my voice and have my agency and lead an organization and fundraise and do things that really weren't, you know, something that I thought I was going to be doing. I thought I was going to be a high school English teacher. I mean, that was my dream, right? So I I had a lot of challenges. And then as my profile grew as someone who was, uh, you know, a young Arab American, Palestinian American Muslim woman, someone who, you know, and, and, and not to say this about myself, but, you know, I had a lot of public speaking skills. So I was very, I was able to kind of drive home messages in a way um, that really resonated with people. So people started paying more attention to who yeah. I was. And then my profile started rising and people 
people would say, well, that sounds like a good thing. Except every time my profile rose, I was met with extreme vicious backlash. Mm. Um, I have, I, you know, in September of 2014, I was attacked in the streets of my own community. Really? By, by someone who um, literally chased me and a colleague down the street. You know, wow. law enforcement was involved. You know, I've had people send me, you know, death threats that have been investigated by law enforcement agencies. I mean, you've seen from Twitter. I mean, I can't even say good morning on Twitter without white supremacists yeah. and right-wing Zionists and others really um, not only just say, you know, disagreeing with me, which is fine. I actually welcome people who disagree with me. Yeah. I think that I have had many productive conversations with people who disagree with me, but people who are very vicious, you know, attacking me for my faith, um, people calling me, you know, uh, creating uh, scandals and, and and controversies that are non-existent. Genuinely fake news. Genuinely fake news um, that is easily um, refutable and just really trying to find as many ways as possible to discredit who I am as a leader. And that and started kind of every time that you raised it, your profile? So it, it, it started, I would say, about six years ago. But... Um, you know, it would it, it would it wasn't at to this level. No. But the minute that I got to the women's march, and the minute that people saw me walk on that stage on January twenty first in two thousand seventeen, standing on a stage saying that I am an unapologetic Muslim American woman, that I'm Palestinian American and proud, and really putting forth a very important message, speaking directly, you know, and saying. I will respect the presidency, but I will not respect this president of the United States. And just really, you know, not mincing my words, yeah. the opposition was horrified. And they said to themselves, we will absolutely not sit back and allow this woman to be the face of any resistance in this country or any or just be a, re a representation of of, an, of of a real American woman that other women who were not Muslim or Arab were resonating like the, yeah. like white women were like, we're with her. And that was just not, they were just not having that. Yeah. And immediately after the Women's March on that Monday morning, I was trending on Twitter. It was that bad. And, but thank God the response um, to that was a trending hashtag worldwide. That was I stand with Linda. Mm, um, I remember and, that. Yeah. And it's I marched with Linda. Yeah. And it was, and I, you know, I didn't ask anyone to do that. I was yeah. horrified just having to absorb what was happening. And people, you know, from elected officials to movement leaders, from every yeah. movement to, you know, uh, people in media to, people you People know, I knew and trusted were saying, hey, from my experience, like, in person with Linda, I can vouch for yeah, her. Yeah, hip-hop artists. I mean, people who really did, didn't make—even the folks that didn't know me personally but knew of my work, they were yeah. like, this doesn't just doesn't align with yeah. what, what happened. And, and, you know, people have to remember that— you know, I'm a parent and my kids are teenagers. My son's a freshman in college. Um, mm. So my kids are, 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 I can't shelter them from the world of social media. So here you are, you're, you love your mom. She does your laundry. And then what you're <laughs> reading about her online is that she's some sort of monster. And she's all these crazy things about I'm connected to terror groups and I'm uh, trying to take over America. I'm trying to make it, convert everybody into Islam. Like, what are you talking about? Come on. So it was a really difficult period for me. And then it con has continued consistently over the last year. And how do you feel like you were dealing with that on a personal level. Obviously, that's so difficult to deal with. And like you said, you've got kids that you've got, you know, you want to shelter them from this, but you can't. What did your support system look like? And, and kind of what did it look like on the backside, the non-public facing side of things? I am very grateful to live um, in a community um, that is full of people of all different backgrounds. I mean, my, you know, you know, my Jewish friends and my LGBTQ friends and people who I've worked with in movement and immigrant rights leaders and others who are like, we got you. Don't even worry about this. And of course, my own supportive family. But I'm not going to lie to you. Like, it's, it's, I'm still a human being and it still hurts yeah. my heart. And I'm, there were days where I like people would call me and it would be at 12 o'clock and I'm still cuddled up in a bed. I just don't want to face the world. And, and I just felt like my humanity was being stripped from me. I felt like I was living an out-of-body experience. I'm like, how could people think this about me? You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person who has committed the last 16 years of my life as a 37—I mean, I'm 37 years old. I'm not an old lady, and that was almost half my life where I've committed myself to every community, every marginalized community. I've risked everything. I put my life on the line. I have been arrested so many times for so many different communities, not about things that just directly impacted myself. I have put my own resources on the table. I have traveled to every corner of this country— because someone called me and said they needed me and they needed my support or my guidance or something. And I and I just felt horrible. Like, I felt like, what am I missing here? Like, what am I doing wrong? And I started almost blaming myself and saying, you know, is it me? Am I putting out something that we're in, where, where people are misunderstanding me? Or is it that people are intentionally trying to misunderstand me yeah. because they just can't fathom this person that I am? You know, and I and you know this, I mean, the propaganda that has been put out 
in the post 9-11 years is trying to paint the Muslim community as some sort of backwards community, you know, that we're homophobic, that we're not, you know, we're not progressive, you know, that we're an isolated, you know, insular community that, you know, we don't want to assimilate with the rest of the with with the rest of the country. And and my thing is what I represent is I represent integration. I represent progress. I'm a true and true progressive. And I have not only spoke of of what it is to be progressive, I have done it in action. You know, I ha- I have been able to reflect my religion in what I believe is its true entirety of that we are all created by one God and that we should all be treated with the dignity and respect that we deserve. And it doesn't matter what we believe and who we are. That's our own personal and God made us all unique in our own way. And they don't want that because that shatters their propaganda campaign. And I was mm. shattering that. And it was like, I was almost like embodying the the one force of opposition that they had to take down. And it hasn't worked. And I think to your point, if I didn't have my support network, I, I would have ran away a long time mm. ago. And I would have said, let me just do something normal. I was going to yeah. ask, was there ever a time where you thought, hey, maybe I should just pack up and you know, go back to my family, spend time in my community and, you know, not be as public of a figure. Were there times where you almost let those people shut you down? There was a moment this past year where I was invited to be a commencement speaker at a graduation in New York City. And there was a big backlash against me about six weeks up leading to that um, that day. And, um, you know, being smeared in all, all the major New York newspapers, people writing op-eds about me to the point where they were writing letters to the governor. I mean, it was really deep um, to the point where every single celebrity alt-right leader like Milo Yiannopoulos and Gavin McGinnis and Robert Spencer and everybody, I mean, all the people that you see on Twitter with the blue checks next to their names, <laughs> they they actually flew all, they all flew to New York City and did a rally outside the CUNY Graduate Center, basically uh, calling on CUNY Graduate Center to cancel my speech. And there was a moment where I sat with myself and said, why the hell am I putting myself through all this stress? It's just a commencement speech. Yeah. I'm not getting paid. Like, why am I? And I literally was like, almost like, you know, <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. And then I would get back into reality. And I say, this is exactly what they want. Mm. They want to silence me. They want to intimidate me. They want me to send me to the ledge to basically say, I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, no, my voice is too impactful. My voice is too powerful. My community is counting on me. People are counting on people like me. And I'm not going to let them silence me. And that day when I walked into the you know CUNY Graduate Center, and I want people to visualize this, I would say they were probably about close to 70 NYPD officers around that event. So imagine it was your graduation and you were literally in one of this like high security, um, you know, NYPD surrounding the, the Apollo where it was happening. I had my, I have my own security detail and to have to walk into, you know, one of the most liberal cities in America, New York City, where I walk around with security detail and I have the entire NYPD the, from the top to the bottom is there And I walk into this CUNY Graduate Center. I get on stage. The um, dean of the school introduces me to the, you know, graduate students and all their parents and family members. And every media outlet in America is there. And I was expecting like a Betsy DeVos moment where I'm going to get booed off the stage. (laughs) I I literally was having nightmares about it like weeks in advance. And I walk in and they introduce me. I get up on that stage and I get a standing ovation from – and it was beautiful. And I go up there and I do my – what I do and um, I get a standing ovation again. And that moment reaffirmed to me that these external forces are not going to break down my spirit and also break down who I am. And in fact, more people are with me than they are against me. that yeah. CUNY experience made me realize that um, and helped me kind of get through it. And I think you're so right. I think that these voices of opposition are, they're just that, they're voices. They're loud, mm-hmm. but they're not plentiful. And it's a, it's a funny time we live in because it feels like there's a lot of those voices. It kind of leads me to, to to think about something you mentioned earlier, this idea of constructive criticism or people who are, you know, actually criticizing the substance of your policy ideas and your thoughts and your beliefs, uh, but not necessarily who you are. Tell me about that process, the process of of actually kind of debating and having conversations and uh, getting to know people who are different than you. You know, during the Women's March last year, we had a controversy around pro-life women and were pro-life women welcome to our march. And it was a big, and I was like, why is this a controversy? I said, 
everyone's welcome to our march. We are not a pro-abortion march. We are a pro-choice march. And I, as a woman, respect a woman's right to choose for herself. If you choose to keep your baby, I love and respect you for that decision. If you choose for many reasons, and that's the other thing about abortion, people don't understand the the turmoil women go through and the of, of making that very difficult decision. And I said, everyone's welcome. It's a, if you believe in a woman's agency to choose Let's have that conversation. Hmm. And all of a sudden, the conversation changes because this is not an attack on any woman of any position. If you're a Republican woman, you're welcome to our march. You just have to understand that here are our unity principles. We stand for LGBTQ communities. We stand for refugees and Muslims. We stand for the uh, uh, workers and making sure they have the right protections at work. And if you if you are okay with that, everybody's welcome. And people are surprised by this kind of conversation. And one story that I have is I went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst to do a lecture. And before I got there, the professors were like, oh, my God, the, 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 you know, some sort of college Republican or some sort of conservative group on the campus is going to come to the lecture and whatnot. And I said, it's OK. I want them to be there. It's fine. And they were like, no, if, you know, we just wanted you to know. And I said, I promise you I'm OK with that. So the day comes, we get to the event and, you know, everyone's running around and, you know, right behind, you know, they, they there was about seven young white men who came. They were wearing literally Trump pen shirts hmm. and came to the event, sat down together and I, would, I went on with what I had to say, and I, you know, as if they weren't necessarily in the room, it was just like they were everybody else. And at the end of the event, you know, I get a standing ovation. I felt, I think they felt a little compelled, so they kind of stood up too, or felt like pressured maybe. Yeah. And then at the end, we went out, all went outside to the kind of, you know, uh, campus area, and, you know, everyone's talking to me. I'm talking to the, all these great young people. And then I caught an eye with one of the kids. And he came up to me, and there was like a parting of the people. It was really dramatic. And he walked over to me, and I put out my hand to him, and I introduced myself, and he gave me his name. And, um, you know, I said, hey, you know, what did you think? You know, I heard, you know, you were coming to peckle me and whatever. And then I said, but you didn't. And he said, um, he said, look, I didn't agree with some of the things that you said, but I actually did agree with some things that you said. Hmm, and I was like, wait a minute. That's really cool. But then he said something that was really profound. And he said, I said, why didn't you, you know, heckle me? And he said, you know— I decided to give you a chance. And I felt that it was a, such a simple thing to say, but what a profound thing to say. So here he was. He had some probably preconceived, you know, assumptions about me, probably read some stuff online. Um, and he chose at that moment to say, you know, let the lady talk. Let me hear what she got to say. Let me give her a chance. And, I, and there was nothing that I said that actually would have caused him to get up and, you know, and I was talking a lot about dignity and respect and everyone deserves this and everyone deserves that. And I think there was really nothing that he could really disagree fundamentally with. Ever since that day, I, I tell people all, all the time, all I'm asking for is for people to give me a chance. Hmm. I don't want anyone to leave there being like, Linda converted me on every position. <laughs> I'm now a true and true progressive. No, I want you to feel whole in what you believe, yeah. you know? And I just want to I just want to give you things to think about in a different way. And then maybe you actually might leave saying I'm thinking about that in a different way. Or you might say, you know what? I left there still believing what I believe, but I kind of respect her for what she believes. Yeah. That's all. That's all I'm asking for. That's it. <laughs> well, and it's really interesting because you have such a unique life experience that most people in America, especially me, will never have. You know, you are an Arab woman who grew up in you know, Brooklyn, New York, mm -hmm. you know, you wear a hijab every day. You've been attacked by it. You know, like you've had all these experiences that I'll never have. And so I want to learn from you because I cannot have those experiences. Therefore, I have to learn from people who have and I can let those inform my decisions, you know, based on my own experiences. And it's it's been beautiful to see. It's really beautiful to hear those stories of people who are experiencing that. And I would imagine there's a lot of people who are experiencing that and maybe not even saying it. And so. Absolutely. I think what, what I, you know, in the moment that we're in right now, like we're just so polarized, you know, it's either you're on that side or on that side, but there's actually many sides to be on in the sense that, you know, we all come from different experiences and we always look at things from our own personal experience. And we have to understand that our personal experience isn't other people's personal mm. experience. So when people are talking about, oh, why are you, you know, fighting for this? And I'm just like, well, just because you don't have to fight for it doesn't mean other people don't have to fight for it. And getting people to understand, you know, what does it feel like to be an undocumented person in this moment where you're watching ice raids across the country, people being stripped from their jobs and homes, you know, people, young people who have DACA, who, which is going to expire on March 5th. And thinking to themselves, I could get deported on March 6th. Imagine having to sit in your home and imagine what it looks like to be separated from your family. So just because you don't have to think about that, 
doesn't mean that we can't empathize with people who do have to think about those things or women who are single mothers in our country who can't even afford to pay the rent. Just because you can afford to pay your rent doesn't mean that there isn't someone down the street from you who's really struggling and we should be able to stand with them. Or just because you're not a black mother who's lost her child to police violence, it doesn't mean we don't show up for a mother who's grieving and say, this is wrong. And I think that when people have come to these types of actions or come to these spaces to hear from the most directly impacted, they're moved. And sometimes people start questioning their own complicity in some of these things. And when we went, we did a Women's March convention and we did a workshop that people said, you know, this is going to be divisive, you know. And I said, you know, sometimes we have to just do things that are not, it's not that they're divisive, they're just uncomfortable. Yeah. So we did a workshop called Confronting White Womanhood. Mm. And, you know, people said, oh, I don't know. But what happened was, and I have this photo where the room was about maybe 700 seats packed to the rim, women sitting on the floor, on the walls, and and a whole line outside to the point where we had to repeat the workshop because people wanted to be a part (laughs) of it. And one of the most transformative things that happened is women were crying as they were part of this workshop. And I remember a white woman who stood up and said, I do cross the street when I see a black man walking towards me. You know what? I don't get in an elevator when I see a black person in the elevator. And I've done that before. You know what? I have clutched my purse around black people. And people started realizing that those very, you know, what what they might have thought as, you know, second nature kind of yeah. decisions were actually racism. So there's something in a, inside of you that you may have thought you were a great person and I, oh, black people are great. But in fact, no, there was something inside that you have to confront. And also... Even on discussions around equal pay, white women are out here like, we got to get paid the same as men, but without having a more deeper conversation that black women don't get paid the same as white women and immigrant women don't get paid the same as black women and white women. So there was there is so much opportunity for people to learn and not be defensive and understand that we all have a place to grow. Like in order for me to have become close to a lot of people in the LGBTQIA community, it was because I have built transformative relationships with people. I love these people. Like, they are my allies and my colleagues. So when I am, when I hear something or I hear of a policy or someone, you know, was attacked, I'm outraged and I'm moved to do something, not because it's an injustice and we should just be against injustice. It's because there's people that I'm connected to. So if, if something happens to a Muslim and you don't have a Muslim friend, it's hard for you to empathize. So I tell people all the time, the movement is about getting to know people. And being friends with people and then being seeing yourself in them and saying to yourself, like, what if I got attacked walking down the street? Wouldn't I want my friends to come to my aid? And that's what happens when I hear people are in distress or there's a policy. For example, trans people are getting, you know, like, like when Trump said trans people were going to be banned from the military. Number one, I'm anti-war. So I don't even want to talk about the military. But in, but it didn't matter at that moment. It's not about the military. It was about that we were going to allow our president to ban an entire group of people for who they are from an an element of our society, in this case, the military, which meant that we would allow that to happen to another community in some other agency or some other place in our society. You know, we're having, you know, court cases about whether I should be serving cake as a baker to same-sex marriage couples. What? Like, we have to understand that regardless of where you are on these social issues, you know, conservative versus liberal, it's really not about that. It's about when you allow something horrible to happen to someone, when you say that this person should not get the same access as you, you're basically putting a label of or almost like a a measure of humanity. Like, these people are more human than these people, so these people deserve more than these people. It's wrong. Mm -hmm. And all I want people to get to the point of saying that things are just wrong. And it's not about you giving up any fundamental beliefs. It's just saying, look, we should all live in our country wholly, be who we are, and basically move on with our lives, agree to disagree on some things. But I think we should all agree we all deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And that's really what what I do. Like every day I just want to live in a country that treats everyone with dignity and respect. Even white supremacists should get treated, you know, as still human beings. Like I don't support let's say, a white supremacist who does something really horrible to someone, and then the response is that we kill them or we give them the death penalty. Like, I don't believe in the death penalty for anyone, for example. Um, and I think we live in a country where people do believe that killing is a is a good form of punishment for people. And it's sad that we, in a lot of countries, like death penalties outlawed, but not in the U.S., you know? So there's a lot of depth to these things, and we don't have any nuance. Mm, I think nuance is something that we are in dire need of, and ideally we can keep on diving into that. But it's uncomfortable. You and I were talking before we started recording and it's difficult to analyze these things in ourselves to say, okay, where am I screwing up? You know, where are the things that I am inadvertently hurting other people, not allowing other people to have the full experiences that I'm having? 
it's a difficult thing to dive into, but it's important. And I think that when you do, not only do you become more whole, but the community becomes more whole. I want to pivot really quick over to, you know, you're talking about how you're doing all these things in your own life. You're encouraging other people to do these things in their own lives. That's essentially organizing. You know, you had all these years of activism and it seems like now you're you're doing a lot more work on an organizational level saying, we're going to organize all these people. And the Women's March is the perfect example of this. The largest, you know, protest in U.S. history. Is that right? Mm, largest single day protest in U.S. history. In fact, 2018 was even larger than last year. Really? More Are those numbers out? out? Yep. What? That's unreal to mm-hmm. me. Wow. So... You're organizing this massive thing that more people are attending than ever before in history. And it means certain things. You can go on the website and see, okay, you know, the Women's March stands for this and this and this and this. But at the same time, you know, you brought it up earlier with pro-life women and men. When you are working with this many people, how do you create something that has enough freedom for everybody to express themselves and the needs that they see in their community while also staying cohesive and, and having a purpose and, you know, not just having a bunch of people who are walking in the street, but having that mean something. How, how in the world do you do that? The reason why the Women's March happened and it was successful is because it was an intersectional type of feminism that we haven't really seen in a long time in this country. Um, and there's been a, uh, a you know, a standard type of white feminism that has really excluded a lot of communities from it. Um, and I think we came to the table and said the reason is, is that people, white women, for example, um, were the ones that kind of originally started the Facebook page for the first uh, Women's March last year. And when the women of color came, we helped to build a platform where everyone felt seen and included in it. And, you know, we can't have one segment of you know, the women populations impose an entire agenda on the rest of us. And if it if it wasn't for women of color at the table and if it wasn't for women who represented marginalized communities, we probably wouldn't have had the largest single day mm. protest in U.S. history and not and definitely not in the diversity that we had yeah. really seen. And the reason why it's it's successful is because it's it's a big umbrella and it allows you to see yourself in it. So there might be a particular policy issue. You're like, you know what? I don't know. I'm not I'm not really that well informed about it. I'm not really sure. But I do believe in equal pay. I do believe in access to reproductive rights. I do believe that immigrants should be treated with dignity and respect. I do believe in that. So I guess I can come, you know, and. When you create different entry points for people, people not only will show up, but in fact, they will be exposed to other issues oh, that's and learn. Good. Yeah. And that's what happened. So, you know, people may have came because they're like, you know, I am fed up, you know, with this idea that we put a sexist, misogynist, you know, sexual predator in the White House. But as I've been in these spaces, I've also learned about the struggles of black women and native women. And you know what? I never really met Muslim women before. And I now I can understand why Muslim communities are living in fear in our country, you know. And and it and it actually was proven when we saw about a week after the Women's March, and there was a tweet that went out that said, everybody get to the airport, you know, when the Muslim ban was announced. And here we had our fellow Americans, I mean, in the hundreds in airports across America saying, let the Muslims in, let the refugees in. And that showed me that people were really opening their hearts and minds in a way that they hadn't for a really long time. We've always had a refugee crisis in this country. We've always had anti-Muslim bigotry. But people finally were like, this is our moment. And now now we feel like there's an entry point for us to come and stand up for these communities. And in the last year, if you noticed, March for Truth, March for Climate, March for Black Women, March for Racial Justice, March for This, March Against White Supremacy. I mean, people are marching everywhere. It's a lot of consistency. And also, not only have people been marching, but I remember years ago when I would tell my friends, hey, there's a town hall that our congressman is doing. And they're like, really, Linda? Like, do you not have a life? (laughs) But in the last year, there were like standing room only people like showing up in the hundreds to these town hall meetings and voicing their opinions and feeling like they had agency and power. We fought back against the repeal against health care twice and won. The only reason we ended up getting repealed was because they folded it into a tax bill. Um, but when it was a standalone repeal bill, we as Americans fought back and we were like, you will not take our health care from us. And that was sit-ins in offices. That was phone calls. That was sending letters. I mean, emails. I mean, people are fired up and they're organizing. We also have to remember that we won in New Jersey. We won in Virginia. We won in freaking Alabama. You know what I mean? We also have historic wins. I mean, the two first Latinas in the Virginia state legislator in history, right? 
the first trans woman in the Vir- Virginia state legislator who literally went up against the man who drafted the anti-bathroom bill, you know, anti-trans bill. I mean, we had the first trans woman out in Minnesota who won a city council seat. And, you know, we, women were re- winning left and right, you know, and progressives were winning in places that are, you know, Republican red strongholds. So, like, I tell people, like, every time you're thinking, like, this is a horrible day we're having, there's all this bad news. Actually, there's a lot of good news this year, like, so much good news. And and there's a lot of um, hope in the air, and the resistance is strong. And then when the Women's March first year anniversary came around, people were like, oh, here we go again. Do we really think the Women's March is really going to be able to, like, mobilize the same kind of people from last year? No, we did, and we mobilized more people than we mobilized, and it was at the hands of— more mostly newer activists in these local areas, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and like places that people don't usually mobilize. So it's not just the New York, LA, you know, Chicago, but in like, you know, little parts of rural America where people were doing these amazing rallies, you know, multiple in Florida, multiple in Texas, you know, in Alabama, in Mississippi. So I tell people I'm hopeful every day because I do see the resistance up close and personal and it's there and it's fired up and it's intergenerational, it's diverse, and and it's people who were part of the silent majority who are saying, not anymore, I'm, I'm down with the cause, and it's really inspiring. That leaves me feeling so hopeful, that you feel so hopeful, and you're in the midst of all of this, and, you know, you're, you experience the hate and the, the vitriol every day, but you're also remaining hopeful. You know, that's something I really wanted to get at, is looking forward in 2018, 2019, you know, the next decade, what do you think that the world can look like? You know, in an optimistic but also realistic sense, where are we going and and how can we be a part of where we're going? It's going to be amazing. Um, it's, <laughs> I love this. It's going to be, um, first of all, I'll, I'll start with 2018. We're going to win so big in 2018. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> um, and we're going to win big. And not only are we going to win big, Brendan, we're, you and I are going to be able to say that we were part of a generation that witnessed h- history. And let me stop really quick and say— I would imagine there's people listening to the show who, for them, when they hear, we're going to win big, they think, I'm a Republican. That's not we. You know, Mm -hmm. what reason does somebody who politically feels like, oh, I'm, I'm not voting blue, why is that good news for them as well? Because when I say we, I also actually am not loyal to any political party. I actually wrote a piece um, recently stating that because I am loyal to the communities that I come from and the communities that I love. And I I know a lot of people, when we talk directly about the issues and our principles and our values, we actually share a lot of those. But we have been taught in this country to put ourselves in these different boxes, Democrat, Republican. I'm not a loyal Democrat. Do I vote Democrat? Often I do. That's And that's true. And But most often it's based on my issues. And that's why I vote down that particular party line. Um, I think what I mean when I say we're winning, we're going to win because a lot of women are going to be in office. And when women hmm. win, we all win. It's because a lot of young people are going to win. You know, these are the, this is the future of our nation. They have the most at stake in our climate, in our, you know, um, you know, in our social security and retirement. I mean, these are the people that are, right now might not have social security. So young people are going to win. Um, people representing marginalized communities are going to win big in 2018. And why does that benefit us all? Because I believe in my heart that those closest to the pain are closest to the solution. And when the people who are the most directly impacted win, they're going to fight with everything that they have. Hmm, and then we're going to benefit from their fight. We're going to, you know, when I say we're going to win big in 2018, we're going to have high voter turnout. And when we all participate fully in democracy, everybody wins because we want to have a full, thriving democracy. And when over half of eligible voters don't go to the polls, none of us win, right? Only a few vote on our behalf. And that goes for any political party. So it's not just that the Democrats don't vote or the Republicans don't vote. Human beings don't vote. And it's because they're they're not feeling something that moves them to the polls. But not only are we going to win in that way. We're going to make history. And I think that I am a person and a woman um, who goes by this saying that, I, you know, that I've heard many times before that says well-behaved women seldom make history. And I'm out in this world misbehaving in a good way because I want to make history. And this year in 2018, after you know, we, this nation's been around for almost five centuries, we're going to have the first Native woman governor, the first Native governor, really, but it happens that she's also a woman, Representative Paulette Jordan in the great state of Idaho. So imagine that we get to say that we were around when the United States uh, elected the first Native woman governor. We're also going to be around when we elect the first black woman governor. The fact that we still in this country have never had a black woman governor of a state, and it's going to happen with Governor Stacey Abrams in the great state of Georgia. 
We're also going to be around to say that we helped put in a very, you know, vitriolic year, you know, in the past 15 years, so much anti-Muslim bigotry. But I believe so much in my fellow Americans that we're going to elect a an economic populist, a progressive in the great state of Michigan, someone who is a scientist, a doctor, someone who believes that the people of Michigan deserve to have access to clean water, regardless of who you are, what political party you're a part of, someone who um, believes that, you know, we should be, there should be infrastructure, that there should be jobs in Michigan so people don't have to leave their the place where they called home. And he's a Muslim and he's wonderful. And I know that the watching him in the state of Michigan and watching how much people are young people, old people, white people, people from the upper peninsula all the way down to the the, the southwest Detroit are like, this guy is awesome. So that's how we're going to win. Make history together. And again, we're not going to sometimes agree on the candidates that we support. But I think that we should all be proud if we get to a, a place where we have parity, where women and men are leading our nation together, where we have intergenerational and we have people who are Muslim, Jews, atheists, Buddhists, and all kinds of people that are reflective of the true nation that we live in. I hope that people, regardless of what side of the political aisle you're on, that you embrace that diversity because it's really who we are. Um, and I think that when we start taking away that anxiety that if I give up to somebody else, that means something is being taken away. No, because even in this work, I always tell people all the time and I tell white women all the time, you know what? You might not feel this, but I'm fighting for you, too, because when I as a Muslim woman get 100 percent equal access, guess what? So will you. You know, when a black woman, when the most marginalized of us gets access and gets equity and gets justice, gets what we that means we all have it. So we should be all working towards that together. So I'm really, I'm fired up. It's going to be amazing. I'm fired up now. I've got goosebumps. This is so good. Oh, wow. For people who are listening to this conversation and they're feeling fired up too, they're hopeful. What's a tangible way that they can get involved, that they can become an activist themselves, that they can care for people in communities that aren't their own? Mm-hmm. How can they start to do that in a tangible way coming soon? Mm-hmm. There's so many ways that people could get involved. And I'll, and I'll start with the one that I think is the most profound and most simple is get to know your neighbors. I mean, oftentimes we live in a country that has taught us individualism and it's not very community based. I tell people, knock on your neighbor's door. Do you know the person that lives down the street from you? And sometimes we work in corporations. We don't even know the name of the guy that's like six cubicles down from us. And I say to people, how will we protect one another if we don't know one another? So I tell people the simplest thing is going over to someone and saying, hey, just want to, hey, my name is Linda. What's yours? You know, hey, I'm down the hall from you. Anytime you need anything, you know, just let me know. It's very simple, but very powerful. So get to know people um, in your community and especially those who live closest to you. The second thing I'll say to people is never end- underestimate your own personal power. When there's a local rally in your community again, around an issue that you care about, show up, even if it's for 20 minutes. Don't say, oh, these people won't miss me. No one will even notice I'm there. Mass mobilization is about one plus one plus one plus one equals mass mobilization. So in the Women's March, it was the largest single day protest because individuals decided to show up on that day. So show up because public dissent is very important in this moment. I always say to people that we all, you know, enjoy lattes and and it's not something to be ashamed of. And I say to people in the U.S., a a latte is between three and five dollars. And sometimes we have multiple a week. Let's give up a latte a week. You know, say every Wednesday, I'm not going to have my favorite coffee in the morning, and I'm going to give $5 a week to an organization that I care about that does something that I care about. And these small local grassroots organizations can do a lot with $20 a month, um, more than you can imagine they can. And you also feel good about it, that you, you know, you can say, yeah, I'm a sustainable donor to uh, this particular organization that works on animal rights or on women's rights or on, you know, for immigrants or refugees or whatever it is. So $20 a month, really, even a college student can do that, in my opinion. You know, that, that again, don't have that Starbucks latte that you like a week. The other thing I'll say is we have to make sure that we're registered to vote. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, here we are, it's Black History Month. You know, there are people, women, black people who fought for our right to vote. Like this wasn't a given in this country, you know, for everyone. And we got to make sure we're registered to vote. And I tell people, even if you think you are, re-register. It will not give you a duplicate. It will basically update whatever you have. Maybe you moved. Maybe you had registered when you were, you know, on your college campus, but now you live in another state. Go back and register and make sure you're registered to vote. And then when the time comes, vote. 
And I'm saying this to people who may not be, you know, I'm telling you to engage in primaries. I'm not telling you to fall in line. I'm telling you, you know, be inspired, find a candidate that you like, follow their work, you know, volunteer on their campaign and vote when the time comes. And then in November, come out again and vote again. And I and I want people to understand people sacrificed for us to do that. But a lot of marginalized communities are counting on us to come out really big in 2018. And the last thing I'll say is we got to be informed because knowledge is power. We are privileged. We can turn away from the news and be like, well, this is really horrible, but I really can't do anything about it. Or I don't want to read news for the next five days. And I understand that. And I appreciate the idea of self-care. But a lot of marginalized communities don't have that privilege. They're always wanting to know what's about to happen so that they can protect themselves. Be well-informed and also be cautious of what you share. There's a lot of fake news out there. And I'm not trying to be Donald Trump. And I don't mean that in in the same way that he does. You know, if you're sharing a headline that you haven't read anywhere else and that's the only place you read it and it's on some really shady website that you never heard of, it's probably not true. <laughs> and then you might create some anxiety or might, you know, put, put out rumors and misinformation that could be detrimental to people. Um, also, if you're sharing something about movement leaders, I mean, there's a lot of uh, defamation of character going around by groups like Breitbart and The Daily Caller and all these like groups run by, you know, people um, who even some Republicans don't agree with, who are extremely right wing. You know, you might want to verify that that information is true. And I've been victim to that where no evidence, just straight slander um, and people share it because they think, you know, hey, what do people think of this? Well, maybe if it was, you know, New York Times or Washington Post or BuzzFeed, maybe that is a little credible. And I see where you want to ask questions. But if you're really if you only find things in right wing media, you might want to question the validity of it. And and oftentimes it's actually not true. Um, So be informed, but also make sure that you're sharing, you know, corroborated information with some sort of verified sources and and be a, a steward of, you know, clean news and so that you're informing your friends and your family. So I think all those things are things anybody can do. You don't have to be a seasoned organizer to do any of those things. I feel like this conversation was such a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's very seldom that we have the ability to be up close and personal with a person who's doing the kind of work that Linda is a part of. I absolutely loved when Linda said, those who are closest to the pain are closest to the solution. This feels true of her story. Linda is such a loud and powerful voice for the marginalized, the voiceless, and the oppressed. And that's because she's known her fair share of personal opposition and pain and tragedy. She reminds us all of the importance of never underestimating our own personal power. And it's important that we all keep showing up for each other. If you don't follow Linda already, follow her on Instagram and most of all, follow her on Twitter. Multiple news outlets have called her the social media queen and there's a reason why. Her feed is a storehouse for inspiration. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. I feel like you'd also love my conversation with Ear Hustle's executive producer, Nigel Poor, who dives into the world of prisons and empathy. And you'd also love our conversation with Libyan-American storyteller Noor Tagori, who shattered glass ceilings as a Muslim working in the news industry. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Christy Karen Brock offers so much production support. You can find lots more hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at at goodgoodgoodco. That's goodgoodgoodco. Sounds Good has had a huge influx of new listeners over the last few weeks, and I just want to welcome you all to what we do here as a part of Good Good Good. We're so glad you're here. We'd love to get to know you further. One thing that we do that's really fun is we have a private Facebook group, and we would love for you to join us. The group is dedicated to celebrating good news and becoming good news. You can join in and see all the good that's happening there. We've included the link in our show notes, so it'll just take you directly there. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Take Linda's advice seriously and maybe trade in your $5 latte instead for an opportunity to financially support a cause that you believe in. Sound good? 